Chapter 4 of Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martina. The Portrait of a Lady, Volume 1 by Henry James, Chapter 4. Mrs. Ludlow was the eldest of the three sisters and was usually thought the most sensible, the classification being in general that Lillian was the practical one, Edith the beauty and Isabel the intellectual superior. Mrs. Keyes, the second of the group, was the wife of an officer of the United States Engineers, and as our history is not further concerned with her, it will suffice that she was indeed very pretty, and that she formed the ornament of those various military stations, chiefly in the unfashionable West, to which to her deep chagrin, her husband was successively relegated. Lillian had married a New York lawyer, a young man with a loud voice and an enthusiasm for his profession. The match was not brilliant any more than Edith, but Lillian had occasionally been spoken of as a young woman who might be thankful to marry at all. She was so much plainer than her sisters. She was, however, very happy, and now, as the mother of two peremptory little boys and the mistress of a wedge of brown stone, violently driven into 53rd Street, seemed to exult in her condition as in a bold escape. She was short and solid, and her claim to figure was questioned, but she was conceded presence, though no majesty. She had, moreover, as people said, improved since her marriage, and the two things in life of which she was most distant conscious were her husband false in argument and her sister Isabel originality. I have never kept up with Isabel. It would take an all of my time, she had often remarked, in spite of which, however, she held her rather wistfully in sight, watching her as a motherly spaniel might watch a free greyhound. I want to see her safely married. That's what I want to see, she frequently noted to her husband. Well, I must say I should have no particular desire to marry her, Edmund Ludlow was accustomed to answer in an extremely audible tone. I know you say that for argument. You always take the opposite ground. I don't see what you have against her, except that she's so original. Well, I don't like originals. I like translation, Mr. Ludlow had more than once replied. Isabel is written in a foreign tongue. I can't make her out. She ought to marry an Armenian or a Portuguese. That's just what I'm afraid she'll do, cried Lillian, who thought Isabel capable of anything. She listened with great interest to the girl's account of Mrs. Pachette's appearance, and in the evening prepared to comply with her aunt's command. Of what Isabel then said no report has remained, but her sister Walls had doubtless prompt a word spoken to her husband as the two were making a ready for their visit. I do hope immensely she'll do something handsome for Isabel. She has evidently taken a great fancy to her. What is it you wish her to do? Edmund Ludlow asked. Make her a big present? No, indeed, nothing of the sort, but take an interest in her. Sympathize with her. She's evidently just the sort of person to appreciate her. She has lived so much in foreign society. She told Isabel all about it. You know you have always thought Isabel rather foreign. You want her to give her a little foreign sympathy, eh? Don't you think she gets enough at home? Well, she ought to go abroad, said Mrs. Ludlow. 
She's just the person to go abroad, and you want the old lady to take her, is that it? She has offered to take her, she's dying to have Isabel go, but what I want to her to do when she gets her there is to give her all the advantages. I'm sure all we have got to do, said Mrs. Ludlow, is to give her a chance. A chance for what? A chance to develop. Oh, Moses, Edmund Ludlow exclaimed, I hope she isn't going to develop any more. If I were not sure you only said that for argument, I should feel very badly, his wife replied. But you know you love her. Do you know I love you, the young man said jocosely to Isabel a little later, while he brushed his hat. I'm sure I don't care whatever you do or not, exclaimed the girl, whose voice and smile, however, were less haughty than her words. Oh, she feels so grand since Mrs. Tachette's visit, said her sister. But Isabel challenged this assertion with a good deal of seriousness. You must not say that, Lily. I don't feel grand at all. I'm sure there's no harm, said the conciliatory Lily. Ah, but there's nothing in Mrs. Tachette's visit to make one feel grand. Oh, exclaimed Ludlow, she's grander than ever. Whenever I feel grand, said the girl, it will be for a better reason. Whether she felt grand or no, she at any rate felt different as if something had happened to her. Left to herself for the evening, she sat a while under the lamp, her hands empty, her usual avocation unneeded. Then she rose and moved about the room, and from one room to another, preferring the places where the vague lamplight expired. She was restless and even agitated. At moments she trembled a little. The importance of what had happened was out of proportion to its appearance, they had really been a change in her life. What it would bring with it was as yet extremely indefinite, but Isabel was in a situation that gave a value to any change. She had a desire to leave the past behind her, and, as she said to herself, to begin afresh. This desire, indeed, was not a birth of the present occasion. It was as familiar as the sound of the rain upon the window, and it had led to her beginning afresh a great many times. She closed her eyes, and she sat in one of the dusky corners of the quiet parlour, but it was not with a desire for dozing forgetfulness. It was, on the contrary, because she felt too wide-eyed and wished to check the sense of seeing too many things at once. Her imagination was by habit ridiculously active. When the door was not open, it jumped out of the window. She was not accustomed, indeed, to keep it behind bolts and at important moments, when she would have been thankful to make use of her judgment alone, she paid the penalty of having given undue encouragement to the faculty of seeing without judging. At present, with her sense that the note of the change had been struck, came gradually a host of images of the things she was leaving behind her. The years and the hours of her life came back to her, and for a long time, in a stillness broken only by the ticking of the big bronze clock, she passed them in review. It had been a very happy life, and she had been a very fortunate person. This was the truth that seemed to emerge most vividly. She had had the best of everything, and in a world in which the circumstances of so many people made them unenviable, it was an advantage never to have known anything particularly unpleasant. It appeared to Isabel that the unpleasant had been even too absent from her knowledge, 
for she had gathered from her acquaintance with literature that it was often a source of interest and even of instruction. Her father had kept it away from her, her handsome, much-loved father, who always had such an aversion to it. It was a great felicity to have been his daughter. Isabel rose even to pride in her parentage. Since his death, she had seemed to see him as turning his braver side to his children, and as not having managed to ignore the ugly quite so much in practice as in aspiration. But this only made her tenderness for him greater. It was scarcely even painful to have to suppose him too generous, too good-natured, too indifferent to sordid consideration. Many persons had held that he carried this indifference too far, especially the large number of those to whom he owed money. Of their opinions, Isabel was never very definitely informed. But it may interest the reader to know that while they had recognized in the late Mr. Archer a remarkably handsome head and a very taking manner, indeed, as one of them had said, he was always taking something, they had declared that he was making a very poor use of his life. He had squandered a substantial fortune. He had been deplorably convivial. He was known to have gambled freely. A few very harsh critics went so far as to say that he had not even brought up his daughters. They had had no regular education and no permanent home. They had been at once spoiled and neglected. They had lived with nursemaids and governesses, usually very bad ones, or had been sent to superficial schools kept by the French, from which, at the end of a month, they had been removed in tears. This view of the matter would have excited Isabel indignation, for to her own sense of her opportunities had been large. Even when her father had left his daughter for three months at Neuchâtel with a French born, who had eloped with a Russian nobleman staying at the same hotel, even in this irregular situation, an incident of the girl's eleventh year, she had been neither frightened nor ashamed, but had thought it a romantic episode in a liberal education. Her father had a large way of looking at life, of which his restlessness and even his occasional incoherency of conduct had been only a proof. He wished his daughters, even as children, to see as much of the world as possible, and it was for this purpose that before Isabel was fourteen he had transported them three times across the Atlantic, giving them on each occasion, however but a few months view of the subject proposed, a course which had whetted our heroine's curiosity without enabling her to satisfy it. She ought to have been a partisan of her father, for she was the member of his trio, who most made up to him for the disagreeables he didn't mention. In his last days, his general willingness to take leave of a world in which the difficulty of doing as one liked appeared to increase as one grew older, had been sensibly modified by the pain of separation from his clever, his superior, his remarkable girl. Later, when the journeys to Europe ceased, he still had shown his children all sort of indulgence, and if he had been troubled about money matters, nothing ever disturbed the reflective consciousness of many possession. Isabel, though she danced very well, had no the recollection of having been in New York a successful member of the choreographic circle. A sister Edith was, as everyone said, so very much more fetching. Edith was so striking an example of success that Isabel could have no illusion as to what constituted his advantage, 
or as to the limit of her own power to frisk and jump and shriek, above all with rightness of effect. Nineteen persons out of twenty, including the younger sister herself, pronounced Edith infinitely the prettier of the two, but the twentieth, besides reversing this judgment, had the entertainment of thinking all the other aesthetic vulgarians. Isabel had in depth of her nature an even more unquenchable desire to please than Edith, but the depths of this young lady's nature were a very out-of-the-way place, between which of the surface communication was interrupted by a dozen capricious forces. She saw the young man who came in large number to see her sister, but as in general thing they were afraid of her, they had a belief that some special preparation was required for talking with her. Her reputation of reading a great deal hung about her like the cloudy envelope of a goddess in an epic. It was supposed to engender difficult questions and to keep the conversation at a low temperature. The poor girl liked to be thought clever, but she hated to be thought bookish. She used to read in a secret, and though her memory was excellent, to abstain from showy reference. She had a great desire for knowledge, but she really preferred almost any source of information to the printed page. She had a great desire for knowledge, but she really preferred almost any source of information to the printed page. She had an immense curiosity about life that was constantly staring and wondering. She carried within herself a great fund of life, and her deepest enjoyment was to feel the continuity between the movements of her own soul and the agitations of the world. For this reason she was fond of seeing great crowds and large stretches of country, of reading about revolution and wars, of looking at historical pictures, a class of effort as to which she had often committed the conscious solecism of forgiving them much bad painting for the sake of the subject. While the civil war went on, she was still a very young girl, but she passed months of this long period in a state of almost passionate excitement, in which she felt herself at times, to her extreme confusion, steered almost indiscriminately by the valour of either army. Of course, the circumspection of suspicious swains had never gone the length of making her a social proscript, for the number of those whose heart, as they approached her, beat only just fast enough to remind them they had the heads as well, had kept her unacquainted with the supreme disciplines of her sex and age. She had had everything a god could have, kindness, admiration, bonbons, bouquet, the sense of exclusion from no one of the privileges of the world she lived in, abundant opportunity for dancing, plenty of new dresses, the London Spectator, the latest publication, the music of Gounod, the poetry of Browning, the prose of George Eliot. These things, now, as memory played over them, resolved themselves into a multitude of scenes and figures. Forgotten things came back to her, many others, which she had lately thought of great moment, dropped out of sight. The result was kaleidoscopic, but the movement of the instrument was checked at last by the servant coming in with the name of a gentleman. The name of the gentleman was Caspar Goodwood. He was a straight young man from Boston, who had known Miss Archer for the last twelve months, and who, thinking her the most beautiful young woman of her time, had pronounced the time, according to the rule I have hinted at, a foolish period of history. He sometimes brought to her, had within a week or two written for New York. She had thought it very possible he would come in. 
had indeed all the rainy day been vaguely expected him. Now she had learned he was there, nevertheless she felt no eagerness to receive him. He was the finest young man she had ever seen, was indeed quite a splendid young man. He inspired her with a sentiment of high, of rare respect. She had never felt equally moved to it by any other person. He was supposed by the world in general to wish to marry her, but this, of course, was between themselves. It at least may be affirmed that he travelled from New York to Albany expressly to see her, having learned in the former city, where he was spending a few days and where he had hoped to find her, that she was still at the state capital. Isabel delayed for some minutes to go to him. She moved about the room with a new sense of complication. But at last she presented herself and found him standing near the lamp. He was tall, strong, and somewhat stiff. He was also lean and brown. He was not romantically, he was much rather obscurely handsome, but his physiognomy had an air of requesting your attention which it rewarded according to the charm you found in blue eyes of remarkable fixed, the eyes of a complexion other than his own, and a jaw of the somewhat angular mode which is supposed to bespeak resolution. Isabel said to herself that it bespoke resolution tonight, in spite of which, in half an hour, Caspar Goodwood, who had arrived hopeful as well as resolute, took his way back to his lodging with the feeling of a man defeated. He was not, it may be added, a man weakly to accept defeat. End of chapter 4